I'm Alex Green, and this is Stare... Whoa, are we getting right down to business? There's no no opening? I'm looking at my producer, Hannah. Hannah, there's no opening. No? Is there no news to report? We have nothing in the... Oh, we did. We did. Okay, we got new uh, wallpaper here in the studio. That's big news. Anything else? The Labradoodle, the one across the street. Yeah. What? All right. Hannah just told me the Labradoodle across the street. He doesn't just live by himself. The Labradoodle who belongs to the woman across the street from our studio. He has how many? 8.9 million followers on Instagram. How many do we have? That's terrible. Yikes. What? That's all we have? Okay. All right. Well, the Labradoodle across the street is crushing us on Instagram. Not that it's a contest, uh, but we need to beef up our numbers. We need to get a Labradoodle. That's going to be the news of next week. I'm going to report I have a Labradoodle. I'll start posting pictures of me with the Labradoodle. Actually, you know what? No. Just the Labradoodle. No one wants to see me. We'll do just pictures of the Labradoodle all over the studio, you know, sleeping on albums, doing cute stuff on the couch, right? Dogs do cute stuff on the couch. You can tell that I'm a cat owner, but I'm sure dogs do cute stuff on the couch. All right, we'll have them do that. What else do we have to have them do? Probably not much. I mean, I don't think the Labradoodle across the street is like working late at night, (laughs) coming up with, you know, innovative ways to present himself on Instagram. He's just cute. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to get a cute Labradoodle, which is probably redundant. They're all cute, right? All of them are cute. And uh, that's going to be our strategy to to increase our social media profile. Do we even care about that? We do. Okay. All right. Okay. So there might be a dog the next time we talk. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of the Mommy Heads, a band which features my guest today on the program, Adam Elk. Let me tell you a little bit about the Mommy Heads and Adam Elk. 
The Mommy Heads got their start somewhere around 1987 or so in New York. They relocated to San Francisco, and in the 90s, they were Bay Area staples. I saw them a bunch of times. Their music is a charming blend of wobbly pop beauty that brings to mind everyone from Jellyfish to XTC. But the Mommy Heads are not just a pop band. They're an idiosyncratic outfit that, over the course of their career, have thrown sonic curveballs that even their most ardent fans never saw coming. The Mommy Heads are indie pop darlings, but they did have a brief dalliance with a major label, signing to Geffen in 1997. After they parted ways with Geffen, they kind of parted ways with each other, taking a break from recording that lasted almost 11 years. With close to 15 albums under their belts, the Mommy Heads' output is rich and rewarding. The band have had their songs covered by Jenny Toomey and Someone Still Loves You, Boris Yeltsin. They appear in a Time Warner TV ad. And I'm happy to report that the Mommy Heads are more creatively alive than they've ever been. Their latest two albums, New Kings of Pop and Age of Isolation, rank among their finest work. And I'm also happy to report that Adam Elk is with me today. So, let's get to it. Here's me and Adam Elk having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. A real keyboardist has one keyboard. A, a guitarist who wants to play keyboard desperately has 50 keyboards to make up for that insecurity. <laughs> a lot of a lot of keyboards, Adam. Yeah, it was my pandemic promise. I, I really wanted to, uh, well, it's a long story, but I, um, a guy passed away nearby and in his basement, he had some ARP 2600s and some Oberheims. And his daughter didn't know what to do. She was like, should I throw them out? What do I do? I flipped one on and smoke came out and I was like, okay, I'm going to fix these, but I can't give you too much because the fixing of each keyboard is going to cost a lot. So that, that was like a year ago when the pandemic started and I've just been like consumed with analog since, since, since then. So, so was he, was he a musician? I mean, clearly he must've been. He was like judging from his keyboards, and what little I know, he was kind of like the uh, cars keyboard synth guy of this county. And in the 80s, if you wanted that, you called this guy. And he would show up with his ARP 2600s and blow your mind. And, you know, woo, you know, and, and that yeah. was his purpose uh, back in the 80s. And, and it's great, you know. Well, you know, we're, we're both Jewish guys. We're not known for fixing things. So I, I'm surprised when smoke came out that you were like, I can do this. Ah, I can't. I found a guy and paid him a lot. <laughs> that that sounds the way I do things. Yeah, like I, I can fix doorknobs and stuff like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a guy in Berkeley here who he was called uh, a Jew with tools and he would go to people's homes and, and prove things and, I, and fix things. And I thought, well, he's dispelling the stereotype. So we have to support him. Right. Not just argument, uh, argumentative tools. No, no, that's, that's all I can do. Or like, um, you know, how to smear, you know, cream cheese. Right, 
Right. Yeah. So I, anyway. Um, well, cool, man. You know, I, I, um, and by the way, how did you do in terms of the fixing of the keyboards? Were you able to stop the smoke? I found the right guy and, you know, um, you know, the, the mommy heads want to do a record a year and now in a pandemic, it makes a lot of sense. Before this, we were just being neurotic, right? And now we, we look for reasons to inspire that next year's record. And hey, analog since from 1981, from 74 to 81, pretty good reason to, to just write music and make a record, you know? Yeah. How's the sound? Incredible. The ARP 2600, I, I don't know, it's like, I kind of got into synths a little late. I was a guitarist and then I, I got into like soft synths. I have, I've always had a mini move, but I got into soft synths for the, for the speed. And what you play is what you get every time. And these old synths heat up. They are constantly evolving with each note and, and they're going slightly out of tune and in tune. And it's almost the closest you can get to a piano that's slightly out of tune. Every note's so different every time you hit it, which is like a human. Like every time you do a vocal performance, it's slightly different. You know, you get a little thing in your throat and you're like, oh, I missed that little, you know, that harmonic. And to play a synthesizer that changes and evolves and has human characteristics is mind-blowing because we've accepted this uh x's and zeros or ones and whatever digital version that is literally the same every time yeah so it's pretty mind it's mind-blowing to play something that has evolution and is in real-time evolution that's that's not a guitar that that is that it just goes against what you think of a synthesizer you think of it as a consistent linear thing that always plays the same but original analog synths are not dx7s they're not um you know they're they're not fm so they're they're um they have chips and the chips warm up and it's just it's absolutely mind-blowing for me and it's like it's like wow you know 74 to 84 that's a long time ago i mean they're literally 45 year old synths so they're in teeth. Like, I, I'm like, you know, beside myself with happiness that, yeah. that I'm playing them and I get to play them. So the, the variability and the unpredictability of each strike presents a whole new creative challenge. Imagine you play something and it changes and then you change your melody as you write your song. Like, it's like it's informing you as a partner. In a dance, you're not just doing the bossa nova anymore, buddy. You're making a new dance, you know. Right. It's pretty wild. Um, he also had, he had in parts, in, in a box with dust all over it, the 15th made Moog ar arpeggiator, like it's a 960 arpeggiator. And Moog went to California and got inspired um, by the California synthesizer scene and came back and started building his arpeggiators, which is, you know, you know. And it was, we heard on Donna Summer as kids, like that was, you know, I, I, I need your love, whatever. And it blew our minds, you know, it was like craft work. And in parts was the 15th made. You know, my sit guy's like, do you realize this is, should be in a museum? And I'm like, let's just fix it up and make it gorgeous, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's amazing to me as now I'm 50, that what seems so futuristic in Jetsons is antique. Right. Right. You, you and I are the exact same age. And it, so you'll know what I mean when I say things like if you, a band like The Shoes or even Roger Manning, all these pop guys went towards synths and went towards moogs. Is that a natural progress? And, and you as well. Is that, a, is that a natural progression, do you think? Or do you have more understanding about why that detour is taken? 
Well, you know, for our age group, uh, and I'm proud, actually, I feel really proud to be a Gen X. I do. Yeah, me too. Um, I feel like we, we, you know, we hated the 70s when the 80s came, we hated the 80s when the 90s came, we hated the 90s when the, you know, and now we're looking back and realizing, wow, the 70s, records from the 70s, you cannot beat them. That analog had peaked during our formative years, like when we were 14, analog was peaking. So this, this, this sort of um, technology had met its, it, it had hit its ceiling, you know, and, um, and then digital came in and it was cheap and consumer. And we went with that and we sold our beautiful gear that we shouldn't have and, and got DX7s and we gutted our fenders and we put Boyd Roses in them to make, to do the whammy thing like Randy Rhodes. We should never have done that. And to some extent, guitars have peaked. Like Guitar Center just sells like memories of great instruments. Like they're not selling really great instruments. So a lot of things peaked during our formative years. And a guy like Roger Manning, you know, he, he knows that and he's, and he's going, oh man, I just, I think I just want to spend the rest of my days making vintage sounding records that have peak of their time. Meaning if you get a, if you get a Moog, a mini Moog from, from the, you know, the seventies, you're getting the best of that sound, you know, and you don't need to type in emulate, um, uh, you know, yes, emulate Rick Wakeman into your algorithm. You just play that synth. And your and your and your notes jump out of the speakers, and, and if you get the original vintage in instruments and and you're respectful with amps and mic placement and that you can actually you you're hearkening back to a time that really is for that sound the ultimate. Yeah. And everything else is just a recreation or or it's or it's it's a um, it's a digital version of it. You know, it's not the real thing. And I do this all the time. Like I'll play guitar direct. And then I'll go into the studio with a vintage mic, a Supro amp, a, a 61 SG. And the difference is like, you know, walking into Notre Dame Cathedral versus looking at a picture on your iPhone. That's the difference to me, you know. Wow. It's that much of an audio, you know. Has it, I mean, has, has it made you gone back and sort of reverse engineer and think like, oh, Jeff Downs, for example, or Thomas Dolby, what they were doing at the time, which I don't know if, if you were appreciating it, you know, at, when we were 14, it was like pop music, the way it, you know, the chorus hit, whatever. I mean, I don't know, I'm not sure how you listen to music at 14, but for me, as a non-musician, it was just like the manic pop thrill wherever I could get it. Um, but now from a technical standpoint, can you listen to those players or anybody else, or even like the cars and, and realize something that you weren't realizing as a as a kid yeah you know some of the recordings were brittle okay and 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 thin and that was maybe what they were going for you know there are moments in a human league song you're like what were they thinking you know thomas dolby to me was brilliant he was in a band called bruce Willis and the camera club first and that's one of my favorite records of all time the bruce Willis original version of video called the radio stars you can't find it anywhere and he was like a 19 year old and his music was very sensational. It was like, I can do everything on synth, look at me, you know? And it didn't have a balance. That said, they're incredible records. And, you know, I love every Thomas Dolby record. Uh, you know, and, and even Tears for Fears, it's like, sometimes it gets, you know, look, the worst to me is maybe Depeche Mode when it's, you know? Yeah. When it's mixed with real drums, you know, like the cars to me is an ultimate mixture of real drums, 
real bass, real guitar, and a lot of synth and a lot of cool queen vocals. When it's a hybrid to me, I, I, it really goes down, e the pill goes down easier. And when it's full synth sensational, like Depeche Mode, Human League, whatever, from that time, the pill gets bigger and I need more water to down it, you know? So I find the hybrid bands to be, looking back, to be less sensational and more musical. Um, and, you know, uh, it's just like, even when we get an acetate now, we'll get them from Europe and I compare it to Drums and Wires and I compare it to the Cars First record and it never sounds as good. <laughs> like it's 2021 and I'm getting an acetate now and we have everything at our disposal, you know. Yeah. Catalogs are this big from Sweetwater. And still, I can't make it sound better than a Cars record. Or, or <laughs> even those, those early OMD records sound yeah. incredible. They're just, you know what, they went to tape. You know, that's a big thing. It's like, yeah. Yeah. all that digital went to tape and it, and it, it just, it made it buttery. It rolled some low off. Um, it gave it harmonics. It gave it a little distortion. I think um, once tape was gone and we went to eight ads, which was probably 89, 90, that was a problem because it, did, it didn't help. It, it, it kind of gave you exactly what went in. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right, right. So is that a sound that you'll, because of that, will you always be chasing that sound or can it be apprehended and can it be captured? You know, I, I listen, I the, like, the, those early Yes records, right? Yeah. Like um, Roundabout, you know, Bruford's drums are right there. The bass is going through a Fender amp and a bass amp and it's distorted, but I'll, I don't, and, and it's crispy. And Wakeman is in the right ear and Howe's in the left ear. And I don't think I'll ever achieve that. I don't think I'll ever, well, A, the band was able to woodshed for a year, let's say. I mean, Lamb Lies Down to Broadway, they went to Headley Grange and just, Played and then it was live. I mean, who's gonna get that again? Like we're all in our little bubbles. We're emulating it. We can get close, but it's it's just defining for I think our generation. That's those are defining moments. Thank God they captured them. Yeah, they're incredible. And and they, I mean, I've had I've talked to a couple of the guys from Yes, and it's 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 really I I have a new appreciation because I felt maybe in the '80s and the '90s when I was really getting into music in the mid eighties, um, I was a little allergic to stuff like that. Cause I thought, you know, I was listening to REM and, and Husker Du and replacements and, and um, Jonathan Richmond. And I, that felt so inorganic to me, but now looking back, I realized it's, it's incredibly organic. I was, I was wrong about, about that at the time. Wrong at some point. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yes, couldn't play a bar. You know, they were playing stadiums in, in the late 70s and they couldn't get a record deal in like 2000. You know, it's, we're all wrong sometimes. <laughs> Whether it's our peer pressure, like, that's not cool, dude. Oh, yeah, it's not cool. Like, you know, but I think as you get older, you just, you just want to appreciate art for art's sake and not worry about if it's cool or not. God. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Like, I remember the turning point for me was, because I was a college radio music director and I was like the gatekeeper and all that shit. And I ended up finally, when George Michael's Freedom 90 came out, I went, well, now I have a problem because I love this song, <laughs> right? And so 
Uh, you can still love Husker Du and love George Michael's uh, Freedom 90. And from that point on, I think I let everything go about worrying about being cool. You know what? The mommy heads always had an issue. And we were so uncool that we would be on tour with, you know, we'd be open, we'd be playing with um, Sunday Day Real Estate or, you know, uh, Cake on tour with Cake, or, you know, cool bands like Love, Love, right? All these cool bands. Just the name of band in the 90s. We play with them, right? The Posies, like, and we were, we were, you know, I'm listening to Michael McDonald's solo records in the van as they open the door going, hey, let's, let's smoke a doobie before the show or let's, you know, and they'd hear it. You know, they hear the Eagles first record or, you know, like, um, this is it. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, I thought you guys were like us. I thought you were cool too. And they'd shut the door and run, you know. Right. And, um, you know, we play with the Jayhawks and. I mean, they actually had a good, they had a good, um, well-rounded palette and we could, I could talk like early Eagles and Glenn Fry with him and with those guys. But like a lot of those bands, they were younger versions of themselves and, you know, they're all amazing, but man, we were so uncool that it was hard to make the hang with us because we liked everything. Yeah. We did, we, we didn't, we couldn't go, we, if they said, yeah, well, no, no, I don't like, uh. I don't like Steely Dan. Like, you wouldn't believe us, you know? Like, you, you do, don't you? You do. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tricky because I think that you could you could almost pretend like, oh, I'm listening to this ironically. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think you like that music, you know? <laughs> yeah. You yeah. like Dragon Solo record. Like, yeah, I guess I do. I'm just a pop dude, you know? So it was very hard for us on that. Like, we just could not fake cool and it was very sad it was just it was tough you know in that regard hanging with the the cool guys <laughs> yeah yeah because in those are the days also where you would look and see what cds people had with them or you know if you went to someone's house you'd look at their shelves and you could you could determine what kind of person they were based on the cds that were on their shelf oh my god dude i used to, if i was dating a, a girl i would go to her house and if she had any remnants of the last boyfriend cds I would decide if I liked or disliked this dude because I'd see him in San Francisco. I knew I was going to see him. So if one, I was dating one girl and I saw Fela CDs. I basically, I just like, t I made copies while I was dating her. And then when I saw him, I said, dude, I, I want to not like you, but you know, I think we're bros. Yeah. Yeah. What if, what if you like his CDs better than you like hers? Dude, it was like that. It was yeah. almost like on that one post that's like the the p-mail and they're deciding about the other dogs in the neighborhood if your cds were cool i'm I, we're good you know yeah yeah <laughs> oh, i totally get that the um the san francisco scene that you guys i mean i saw you guys play so many times and um i'm from the bay area and i always thought of you guys as a san francisco band when i you know i was just sort of um i always thought of the mommy heads as an sf band and that whole scene of that music scene was such a rich, amazing time. And it doesn't exist anymore here. I mean, all the musicians can't afford to live here anymore, which is really too bad. Um, but you must look back. I mean, this show really is about looking forward, but you must look back with some fondness about at that time period. It was such a fertile, fertile time period. We were so lucky. I mean, I really started playing in the, in the mid eighties and our first gigs were at CBGB's. And that's where I met, you know, Dan and Michael. They were in another band, and Hilly Crystal was 
the godfather of the scene and liked both our bands. They were in a band called The Connotations. I was, I had the mommy heads and, and we, you know, our drummer didn't want to play with us anymore. He wanted to go to art school. So we fused bands and it was because of Hilly Crystal. And, you know, here's the guy who managed, you know, he helped get the Talking Heads signed and Blondie and gave television their first gig and, and uh, managed the Dead Boys, giving us advice. He also, and you know what? He said, go see this band Camper Van Beethoven. And we did. And that led me to Pitch and Tent Records and, love, and wanting to know more about San Francisco. It was Hilly Crystal. Um, and, uh, but he was great. He, we actually opened up for Crowded House on their first tour when they wow. had CBs and saw how professional and great they were. Just one guitar and the place was theirs, you know? Um, and I, you know, I got to do, I would got to hang with the lighting guy up in the perch and do uh, lights for the Pixies when they played in front of 10 people and like their first shows. I was 16, 17 years old. They actually created a Saturday matinee for the bands that were underage because they can shut the bar down. And there were all these little ska bands and us, you know? Yeah. And we were so lucky to have that scene and, and be part of New York at that point and then decide, wow, Pitch and Tent Records and Camper are doing this stuff on the West Coast. Let's try that out and moved to San Francisco in 90 and, and it was so affordable. And it was like, we moved to Clarion, we moved to Sycamore and our neighbors were Jawbreaker. And it was the, uh, it was the residence studio, their main house where they did everything. Yeah. Was our, they were our neighbors. And I thought, I have duck stab, like these guys are incredible. I, I want to live here forever, you know? Yeah. It was 600 bucks for a three bedroom and, uh. You know, it was incredible. We went to Secret Studios and, and the Paradise was going and Slims and, and um, there were just so many great places to play. It was affordable. And the amount of cool acts that were happening was just phenomenal. It was phenomenal, you know? Yeah, so you had, so you had Blake from, from Jawbreaker and those guys and you had the residents and the, I mean, you had like, right? The drummer, I worked at a, a video store with Adam, the drummer called Leather Tongue. <laughs> Oh God, I didn't know that place. <laughs> it was just lesbians that went in there. And, and Adam and I were like, this is okay, we can do. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, um, again, it was, it was so fertile and there were so many different kinds of bands that were playing that whether it was the Residence or Jawbreaker or, you know, punk or experimental or, or indie stuff, it was all there. And um, it's weird to look back at a time like that with, and think like, that could that just isn't going to happen again in in that area it's kind of like what we're talking about with those 70s records it's like you're you're it's like you'll be chasing that this is never going to happen again uh, i think san francisco was more uh more diverse than la obviously back then it was a hair scene right it was yeah. just pay to play and guns and roses were it and and it was too much money if you if you paid and and that was it, you know. So there was the punk scene in in L.A. and that was amazing, you know. Um, and then there's Seattle scene, this whole grunge thing, you know. I I thought San Francisco had the most balanced scene, meaning uh, you had guys playing with Tom Waits, and he was hanging out at clubs. You had um, uh, uh, Jim Campolongo. You had uh, the funky thing with. Um, what were they? They used to play the Elbow Room. Um, uh, it had a Star Trek name in it, Shat or something. Um, you had uh, you had uh, everything basically. You know, you had the old Grateful Dead jam thing going on. Right. Um, 
you had the blues thing. I mean, Slim's was owned by Boss Skaggs, so you got you got NRBQ coming in every like month, it seemed. That's right. Um, you got places like American Music Hall. We had the best venues. Um, it just seemed like it wasn't titled anything. It wasn't grunge. It wasn't hair. It wasn't like punk. It was everything. And the residents balanced it out and were quirky and visual, you know. Um, it, it just seems so diverse, and I think to, to its own fault. Like, you couldn't sell it. You couldn't sell that scene. Who would you sell it to? Yeah, you, you, no, it was too, it, it was just too wide. It was everything. Yeah. So, I miss it. And, and one of the best things about it was there was no money. Everyone was kind of poor. Yeah. No internet yet, like... And then I left in 2000 because it was unaffordable. It just couldn't afford it. Well, you got out fairly early because I think by 2008 or 2006, um, it was it was over. I mean, you just you just couldn't even it, couldn't long run. over. No, yeah. no, and it's it, it's really it's really too bad. I talked to Victor from Camper Van, and he, oh, I just like, I, cool I guy, that. right? Oh, best. The best, and he was like, "Yeah, I can't, I can't do this." He was, he was, he had just left, um, and he stayed. He hung in there for a long time. A lot of people did, but, um, but one of the things that that I I like about what's going on with you in your career is I always thought I'm a writer, and I always thought that a burst of creativity had a lot to do with youth. I thought that sort of like explosion of um, that sort of like the exuberant, the work just keeps coming and coming and coming. And um, it's nice to see that at our age, um, here we are, I feel really prolific in my own writing. And it seems like for you, you've always been prolific, but it seems like you haven't slowed down at all. If anything, it seems like there's more than ever. I think, I, I used to think it was youth too. Like I thought when I'm 28, I'm over. Like Brian Wilson right. did his work, you know, when he was 21. <laughs> 22 but you know that that's a misnomer that's something that we're we're led to believe because we we feast on youth you know look at look at fashion you know and look at actors and um but what i realize it's situation the situation that you're in as a creative artist depicts what you're going to do meaning we've been i i would call the mommy heads wildly unsuccessful We've been wildly unsuccessful. Like, we had a shot with Geffen. They realized, what did we sign? And dropped us, you know? Because it, had they realized what they signed, they, si they, they signed a band that, that didn't write music to the PA system. You know, like, uh, you know, I know you've had this reference before, but U2 writes songs for their PA system. And they write songs for how big that crowd is. And that is a restriction. And, and so success has made them prisoners. We can all live fine in this world. We don't need to be wildly successful. What we have, what we've attained as a band, I'll say, I won't just speak for myself as a writer, but as a band, is when you think of relationships, if they've gone on a long time and you think, what were our best years? They were when you were in a studio apartment, you were starving, you had little jobs, but love seemed like there were no barriers to love and there was, the world was almost unattainable, but it was worth the challenge. And you were young, you, you know, that you could say that was youth, but yeah. you could also say that was the situation you're in. When Talking Heads were behind CVs 
all living in a loft. Those were their best records, not the mundane stuff in the 80s. It was songs of, you know, like uh, the, the first three records, Fear Music. Uh, and yeah, and oh, up to name, name of this band. Yeah, name of this band. They were living in a loft. So what we've attained over our career is we've never left that loft. Mm. We're still hungry. We still see that love, like love of life and love of creativity is that doesn't have barriers, meaning, oh, we had a hit. Now we have to top it. So we, or we have business issues or your lawyer said something to my lawyer or um, we need, you know, we got to sustain something, you know, there's nothing to sustain business-wise. There's no debt to a label. And, and so what that does is let's just write music that we want to make. Let's not worry about our crowd size. Let's be happy in front of 10 people or a hundred thousand people. And let's really see what it's, what it is. Because when you're too successful, you make your worst art and you have your worst days as an artist and you, your relationships are strained with your band, your relationships are strained with your wife and your kids. It's none of it's good. But if you can maintain a sense of reality and just keep going and just make the best art possible and still be in that studio a little hungry, you're going to be fine. So it's really your outlook. It's your mental outlook. And if you have a decent mental outlook, you could pump, you could pump art out. Did you feel pressure when you were signed to Geffen? Did you feel like, um, that's a big contract to sign. That's a big label. I mean, their hall of fame is, is pretty amazing. Did you feel like, okay, now we better, we better produce or did you, or did you go the other way? I, it was both. I felt stress. Okay. Everywhere you turn was Weezer, Nirvana, Guns N' Roses. Here's, here's your public, here's your PR woman. She does Guns N' Roses. Here's your A&R guy. He does Peter Gabriel. Here's your other A&R guy. He does Weezer and, you know, Guns N' Roses and Nirvana. You know, it's like, you're just like, and you know who you are. And you're like, there's no way that this little pre-emo core <laughs> band <laughs> ever survived us and so what we ended up doing was we got done was just to sort of deflect and go yeah we signed up for this and then we just made another mommy head record right and that was it it was like we didn't do any loops we didn't work with the dust brothers i mean once you get signed to geffen everybody wants to get that money so get george martin you know but you know we just got him to deflect and just made our record and knew that we're probably gonna go down in flames, but it's gonna be a big fireball, like, you know, and then gone. And that was it. I mean, nobody can sustain six record contract where the first record's a half a million dollars back in 97, which in today's money is a million. Yeah. I mean, Did you guys sign a six record deal? It was something between five and, you know, four and six. Wow. I mean, but then, but you was ever a part of you that thought, well, they must have, because I love the mommy heads, and clearly they did too. So they must have heard something that they, that they clearly like. So was there also a part of you that went, well, I think they probably do understand who we really are, and we we probably do have some space. Or did you that stress was too? You no, know, you're saying no. What they signed. I think we had a role. We were playing with Lisa Lowe, who was a fan. She had she was the biggest artist on that that label for that year, '97. She had stay, oh. and in terms of numbers, she was 
I'm like doing great. They didn't act, you know, Nirvana's catalog was, you know, Nirvana was done, Guns N' Roses wouldn't get back together. It was a, it was a weird time. And, um, and so we were opening for her, we did 30 shows or 20 shows. And, um, you know, we had, we played LA and, 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 you know, we had people in the audience, like some big people, and they just thought we have to sign them because this is what we're supposed to do. Mm. It became this like, you're at the buffet, you got to eat everything. Right. I can't leave that, that, that little plum cake, you know, I can't, I got to eat it all. And then you're like throwing up after going, why did I sign all these bands? I don't think any label really knows what they're doing ever. And that's why they don't exist anymore. It was never a science. Yeah, and I think Counting Crows were also on Geffen at the time, right? They were, actually, our, one, we had two A&R guys, and one of our A&R guys was Counting Crows' A&R guy, and he, uh, I didn't even know if he was a fan of theirs. I couldn't even tell. It's interesting. It was just business as usual, you know. Yeah, that, that sort of, right, I get what you're saying. There, it was almost like there was just too much. It was just too much. And there were so many bands, and there's a part of me that actually kind of misses this, even though it's, it, it's high pressure. In the old days, I don't know if you remember when they gave Chevy Chase a talk show. They gave Pat Sajak a talk show. They lasted a week. They were done in a week. Um, in the old days, if you didn't produce, you got dropped from your label. Um, nowadays, it seems like, like nobody fails anymore. Everybody is sort of given this... Um, it just seems it just seems like it doesn't happen anymore. Like you don't get dropped, you don't get canceled. It takes a long time for that to happen. Yeah. So I do. I like that there. I like attrition as a natural thing. I think that's kind of cool. Um, but I also feel sometimes that in those days, a lot of a lot of really great bands that got signed um, didn't get chances. That they they got people got impatient and people got remember that whole big. Um, they sent all those college rock bands and from like 89 to 91. Like I remember CBS signed Big Dipper and they signed the Rave Ups and they signed, they didn't what, right? They didn't know what to do with those bands. They had no idea. I mean, Daniel Johnson got signed. I was like, he got a huge contract with Electra or Atlantic. Yeah. And I thought, do they know what they're signing? And then you're really going to You're going to drop Spoon and, spell and sign, like, there's no art here. I mean, to me, look, to me, it's, it's all BS. It was a business model. What was the business model? Print a CD for three pennies and sell it for 15 bucks. That is an undeniable profit. You have to be stupid not to keep that going while people are still, right? Until, right. until it's antiquated, let's just keep going with it, right? Okay, so it starts there and goes backwards to, we just signed Daniel Johnston at the end of that thought process. You know, the guy's like crazy, you know? Yeah. Um, so, it's a business that had no real art or science to it. It just had guys with personalities that had a guttural feeling. Like I've met Seymour Stein. And when he goes, I like you guys. Here's a guy who owned a record store, just like Jack Holtzman, just like Chris Blackwell. Like they're all lifers. And when they like you, it's like Svengali says, yes. That's the only thing that made sense to me. When guys like that, when, when David Geffen actually went to your show and said, you know, Joni Mitchell, I'm going to sign you. Like, you, you had these guttural guys, these historic guys who lived and breathed music, and now they have money. <laughs> and they're going to put you out. And when those guys sold out to Wea, it was over. Because then you just had people who just got jobs there. You know, hey, I'm an a and guy. You know? So it was bound to go away. 
and it did. And now what do we have? Well, we have the inverse. Now you have a website, you look like you're a rock star. You could come across any way you want, but really there's no money. I did an interview with a guy in, in Omaha who did an interview with St. Vincent and she could barely keep her head above water because, you know, because 3,000 copies means you're at the top of Billboard this week. Right. That, that's not 30,000 or 300,000. So if 3,000 copies means you're, you're, you know, you're number one on Billboard, that's not a profit. That's no. just, that's just the new, that's just an analytic. <laughs> There's no, well, I remember I was talking to the publicist for the Jayhawks back in 90, right when the Tomorrow the Greengrass record came out. And I just thought there was nothing better than that record. I thought this is, a, this is like an abs, it's a stone cold classic right out of the box. And I remember saying to her, you know, that this is the record of the year. And she said, well, we're not, we're not sure if they're, if the label's going to keep them. They only sold a hundred thousand copies of that record. And right, <laughs> think about it now. I know. I mean, like, like Jimmy Fallon's ratings right now would have gotten him fired in four hours in 1987. Easily. Easily. You know, so things have changed a lot. Yeah, I do like about it now is no one's there to drop you. No. And if you're on Bandcamp, which we are, which is our primary source of income because for every 10 bucks, we get eight, right? Which is amazing. Yeah. So God forbid the Jayhawks make a new record and they sell 100,000 copies on Bandcamp. They just struck gold. So right now you just do what you do and don't worry about the infrastructure that doesn't exist. You know, hopefully you don't have a pledge situation where pledge music, you know, takes all that money and disappears. <laughs> But, you know, you, you find a, a, a viable place to deposit your music. And if people want to donate a dollar or a penny or 10 bucks, it, you would have given them the music for free. So you're getting money and you're getting most of it, you know, 80%. And to me, that is a literally direct to consumer. And you don't have to write for a PA system anymore. And you don't have to write for a huge crowd. And you don't have to write for your last hit. You don't have to compromise. You could be, you could do whatever you want. And that is how those great records were made. They slipped, you know, it's like uh, Odyssey and Oracle, <laughs> you know, you listen to it now and you're like, they did whatever they wanted. Yeah. It was awesome. You know, God forbid they were trying to follow up a hit and that was their mentality. That record never, never would have been made, you know. So maybe it's better now. I don't know. I do know that it's, you know, when it, once it becomes your career and, and you're trying to sell, you're just doing it for the money, that's the end. They ruled you in on a metal card. They looked at the ground when they read your chart. The words of wisdom that they could impart. You were born with a speaker instead of a heart So they pulled the plug and they walked away They hung you up on display In the wing of the bazaar and the unexplained They didn't even bother to give you a name 
something I've been thinking about for years, which is I've been, I've been mourning you too for the last 30 years because I, you know, you and I both, I, I still remember where I was when I heard the Joshua Tree. It was just like, oh my God, right? The urgency of that band. Eddie Murphy to me was the funniest man on the planet. Both of those characters, Eddie Murphy and you too, both became something I don't even recognize anymore. Um, and I guess it's because like what you're saying, they, they ended up having to sort of chase the PA. And- Right? I th- look, I- I'm going to say something that sounds insane, but I feel bad for a band like you too. Now, money is good. I don't do this for money. I don't think they did it. When you listen to Boy or um, you know, any of those first three records, when you hear Sunday Buddy Sunday, you know, that's not a band doing it for money. They got right. political reasons. They got, you know, Ireland's- Ireland was burning down. They were the young, fresh, bold, band of, the, of our time and Joshua Tree became a hit and then since then I, I feel bad for them because they, they, they are prisoners of their success it sounds like I'm being defensive and I'm trying to defend my wildly unsuccessful career but I actually feel like I have the ability still to make 
part to me that has more weight than if I was restricted by them. Like if I put myself in their shoes, I'd be a mess. I would be crying every night in my dreams. My dreams would have just tears, would be drowning in tears of I can't make the art I wanna make, I wanna make. So we never got the U2 we deserved because they were too successful. And you're right, Eddie Murphy, man, he could have, he could have had, he could have been the best artist of all time yeah. after coming to America. But I mean, look, I just, Cuba getting junior. He did Jerry Maguire. And then he did, uh, you know, he said, I want to, I want to be the $20 million guy, just like uh, mask. And, you know, all of a sudden there were $20 million actors around 2000. So he makes snow dogs and boat trip. Have you seen snow dogs or boat trip? I've tried. <laughs> so he went up to the money. He did Jerry Maguire where he's like incredible. Like there's five scenes in that movie that just make you want to like jump up and down or cry or laugh. Yeah. And they're not Tom Cruise. And, um, and then he did it. He did the Eddie Murphy. He did the U2, you know, it's, t it's my time to cash in. And that's where we lost. Cuba Gooding Jr. is the next, you know, great actor. <laughs> yeah, you can, that whole idea of chasing after something, you can, you can almost see it on Eddie Murphy's face. He just looks miserable when he's trying to be funny in every movie after that, because you can see the pressure on him to, um, to chase that. With you too, I mean, I, I, every time I, hit, I keep, I have so much hope where I go, this is the album where we're gonna, they're gonna sound like you too again, but they never, they never did. Um, but, but you're also explaining in many ways your own sort of creative burst where um, I've always admired how prolific you are. And like we were talking about at the beginning of this is that it feels like the sky is the limit. You can do anything. Um, that's, right? life. that's life. Is, what is life? <laughs> you get up in the morning, you have a coffee, and then what do you do? <laughs> you can go to a job or not. Like, the job pays the bills. You know, we're in this infrastructure. Job pays the bills, keeps you, you know, don't curse too much. You know, it's like, don't jump out a window today. Like, you gotta mail something. You gotta pick up the mail. Like, what is life? It should be that. It should be sky's the limit on whatever you're doing. So pick what you do. If you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, you should be able to, to not be repressed and a hostage of something like success for, you know, why should success hold you hostage? It shouldn't, it should open up the floodgates, but it has this reverse thing, right? So you wanna be successful, but not wildly successful. You know, you wanna be good, but not so good where everyone's calling you and you can't think straight. Like that, that's really to me is what life is. It's to wake up in the morning and what is, what are you gonna do today? For me, I just like, if I could write a great song and not be encumbered, and speak to my generation or anybody and take a concept where if I spoke to you about it, you'd argue with me. But if I put it to a nice melody, you'll go, hmm, I kind of see your point. It, that, that's so like, it's so manipulative, but I actually get through and you go, you know, my wife loves that song, even though she doesn't believe in any of that, she kind of is coming around to it because she just likes the hook. Like, yeah. think about that as communication. If you just go to a podium and you say something, you may get booed, but if you put it to a nice melody and harmonize it, use some counterpoint and get a nice drum groove in there, you can actually say anything. And that's, that's what I want to do today.
How do you feel in terms of, have you refined your creative attack where you know if you, if you start writing something, you go, mm, maybe I need to abandon this now, not waste the time? Or do you always see it through? Well, um, I, I got into commercial music in 2000 to pay the bills because after Geffen, I had debts. Right. I tried huh. to do a record, I hired people. And after like a month or two of, of some commercial music, I paid my debts up and I thought, okay, I can have a day job and, and now I'm free. Like I can pay for, you know, my side gig, which is the mommy heads. And um, I did form an opinion about process, which is the Randy Newman approach, which is just get to the piano, write something. And then don't worry in the moment if it's dog poop or genius, just write it. And so there's a numbers game. Uh, like, the, you remember Etienne Desrochers? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It took me 10 years to make a record. I remember when he, I was at a tape-off convention. I'm hanging out with Chris Walla. We're having a great, you know, from Death Cab. Where, and he comes up and he goes, here's my CD. I finally finished it. I'm with John Vanderslice. And we all go, ooh, you know. And then I listened to it. And I love Etienne's music. And his, you know, Andrew, his drummer was great. He played with Tom Waits. Like, it was a perfect scenario. Bonnie Simmons was managing him. And I listened to it. And just because it took him 10 years or eight years, whatever, it was hard to deal with. Like, I didn't say, is this it? But I thought I was going to hear the next, like, Beethoven's missing symphony, you know? Yeah. And um, which led me to believe, don't be too precious. Sit down, write it, write five, write 10, write as much as possible and come back tomorrow. And decide tomorrow when you have perspective and you're in a different headset, if it's dog poop or genius. So with that in mind, and what commercial music has done, because they have deadlines, I make deadlines for a record. It's gonna, we gotta master it this, you know, da, 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 da. And let's not dilly-dally and give me, let's do as many things as we can do. Let's go in and let's not put together a collage of just random stuff, but let's have a theme. But most of it is, sit at the piano and do something. Go to the guitar and do something, put it down and decide like tomorrow. In other words, what you're, what you're saying is really valuable. You're saying, don't be the editor and the creator at the same time. That's why I have a producer. Right. You know, people always wonder what a producer does, right? You know, is it some dude with long hair who just comes in and you know, says a couple words? Is it the one that sits at the board and micromanages everything and replaces the drummer? Like, is it the, is it the Brian Eno that comes in and says, let's get the weirdest sound possible? Right. I think what he does is figures out who you are and tries to counteract it and balance it so that it fits in a society. So if you're some, if you're a nutcase, they're just trying to level you out. If you're too solid, they're trying to shake you up. And how do you do that to yourself? Because now do producers exist anymore? I wonder, I mean, everyone's in their own, you know, they have pro tools, yeah. whatever. So now we have to be producers. So what is that? That's you tomorrow. Write the song today, come back tomorrow, and then you could be producer guy and go, I think that's, that's ingenuous, start over. So it's really, you know, if you can't do it at the same time, don't edit yourself in real time. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a teacher and I teach college out here in the Bay Area. And I have a student who said to me, uh, you know, I'm, ha I'm having a terrible time on my, on my essay. I've been trying to write it for two weeks. I said, well, how much do you have? 
And she said, I have one paragraph. And I said, why after two weeks do you have only one paragraph? And she said, every time I write, I erase a sentence. And I'm like, I wouldn't do that. I think you need to just get as much clay as you can and then start molding it later. Um, so what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. I just wrote a book and I, 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 I could feel myself, the creative part was over. And I literally a week later became the editor. And cool. I, right? It, it doesn't work the other way because I don't think, I don't think you'll ever accomplish anything if you have both hats on at the same time. I think creating to me is very, it, it's, it's like birth, like when the baby comes out and it's crying, they all cry. They all need to be, they all need to be slapped. <laughs> you know, some doctor comes in, I got this. So mom's freaking out, dad's freaking out, you're freaking out, the kid is gonna cry. There's no kid that comes out quietly. Right. And that's the song. It's a, you're just a crying baby about something. And that's the thing that people are gonna react to because everyone's gonna react to that crying kid, not just the parents. And so, you know, someone's gonna go hear John Lennon's Imagine, which is him crying or him singing about his mother and, and, or Julia and go, I'm moved just as much as he was when he wrote it. And then the next day you come back as the guy who enters the room later and looks at the chart and goes, um, yeah, this is pretty good. It's, it's some iron levels are low. Let's give him some vitamins. Right. And, and the, the crying is over. And you're the same person who, when the birth happened, was like, got all sweaty and like, is he alive? Is he dead? Do we, there's a cord around the neck snippet, do something, da, 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 you know. And then you're just, the, you're just that other doctor the next day going, let's look at this scientifically, you know, let's look at this through a different emotional scope. Like, I like what you're trying to say, <laughs> you know. Right. And, and so to me, again, the producer would do that. The engineer would do that. You have a springboard. My band does that. They'll, I had a vocal in, a, in a, a song for the next record, and they said it sounds very much like a bullshit, you know, Spike Lee soundtrack, soulful white guy thing. Take it away. And I said, you're right. And I took it away. And my band is my springboard, even when I think it's good. And that's thank God for bands. Thank you. Th thank you for bands. Yeah. I love um, but, but if you're going to do it yourself, just come back the next day. And if you have a band, you may, you know, even better because they're going to tell you, I don't like this, or this is the one go back to this song, you know? Um, and that's just humanity. You're just going, bringing that crying baby into humanity, into the village. And that's the band. And I feel bad for solo artists. And I wish Tears for Fears had two more guys, you know, like I wish that more bands were like, the Eagles at their best, or the Beatles at their best, or you know these bands that are like XTC. You know, take Terry Chambers away, and it becomes easy listening, to some degree. You know, it's like those moving parts were integral, and that's the ultimate way to make a great record is really have trust in all those guys. You know, are are the mommy heads tighter than ever? In in other words, it seems to me like you guys can't be stopped now. Um, do you feel the mommy heads are in the best place they've ever been creatively? Totally. Totally. I really do. You know, I, I obviously I love XTC. Yeah. And I wish they can still make music and I wish that they could put their, their, all their issues aside and their business stuff, stop talking through lawyers and you're all alive. I wish they can celebrate how great they were and keep making records because I would, I would almost give up a year of the mommy heads so they, and give that 
give give some creative juices to them or just give some sort of humbleness be humble you know i i feel that i'm blessed because a we're relaxed b we absolutely love each other as a band we still have disputes and hate each other sometimes but we hug it out the lack of success has only helped us we don't have a hit that we need to emulate we can say whatever we want we have people that like us that will support us and help us make the next record we don't even have to play shows. We could just make record, 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 and then you go to our website, and then if you want to go down a rabbit hole today, this will be a good rabbit hole. That's that's all we offer. We're just a decent rabbit hole to jump down, you know. But but are, are we better than what? You know, look, we're not as good of a live band as we were when we were in San Francisco and we were yeah. playing Utah every month. But this is just different, and and it's very very freeing and very very um. It's very very healthy for a 50 year old guy, you know, in the suburbs. It really is. Do the, the years of, of inactivity for the band, when you were those, do you think those were very necessary in terms of to bring you to where you are now? Or do you regret that there was so much time in between or you're made peace with that? Oh, I'm totally fine with it. Look, Geffen, almost, it, basically we couldn't handle it after. Yeah. We got money, the limo rides, the hotels for a half a year to a year. And then we were what we're gonna go back to sleeping on floors. Yeah. That killed us. And then we came back in 08, 10 years later, and realized we do this music better than anyone. We do mommy head music better than anyone, which yeah. is what you say, but why not keep making it? Like I think it has a place in the world. You know, there's nothing else like it. It's quirky and overly intellectual. And, and and has a lot of wonderment, very funky. Like it's a weird mixture of stuff that just doesn't exist. Um, and it's not self-conscious. So let's just keep making it. And I would say that to any band, like that it has hard feelings or whatever, just get over, get past it. And and so that your kids pick up a CD one day and your, your name's on it and they get to know you through your music. My kids are gonna know me way better through my music than from me. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is I'm, there, has there been any sort of uh, interest from your, from your kids in your music or are they, are they too young or have they, have they shown any kind of uh, curiosity? I, I know that they like it, but okay. I force it on them and I, 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 I wait until they come around. I'm not a peer. They only listen to their peers, you know? So I don't push it on them. Yeah. And, and like, if they're interested, I'm there. Was there, because um, I remember I, I hung out a little bit with Adam from Counting Crows when I was in college and I would see them play at the Berkeley Square or at Bottom of the Hill and his parents were always there. And I felt that, you know, that kind of support was so cool. Did your, did your parents support you? Were they, were they behind you in terms of your creative endeavor? Because you really got started pretty young, Adam, in terms of the trajectory that you went. Um, were your parents freaked out about it or were they behind you? They were totally behind it. All of the guys had supportive parents. We don't, we don't have, aside from some divorces, we don't have a lot of parent issues, not a lot of parent trauma, mm -hmm. which makes us who we are to some degree. I think parent trauma can make you a little more defensive, make you want to rock out a little more and be bigger than you are. I don't know. I'm, I'm just delving into quick psychology, but yeah. you were very, very uh, supported. You know, my parents were like, do what you want to do. 
I was playing CBs when I was 16, 17. I was sneaking in and they were fine with it. They filmed it and it did relax the whole band. We all had supportive parents. And um, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be that as a parent. Uh, we're not a very, you know, what that led to is we're not a very rebellious band. Um, we're not the clash, you know, like you hear that music and you want to break something. Um, so we could have used a little more trauma, maybe. I don't know, but we, <laughs> we are from a very supportive fan base, parents, spouses, kids. It's almost like patting in the back. Just keep doing that thing. You know, it's so yeah. cute. Um, and that, I'm fine with that. But now we're getting a little more rebellious. We don't, you know, none of us like what's happening in the world. And no. I think the lyrics are finally evolving to, they're more pointed. And the next record's even more pointed. And it's done in a way where with melodies and harmonies, but we've, we've gotten more, way more um, political and into the environment and into the world than we've ever been. So finally at 50, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny, I was telling someone yesterday that I, I said, you know, I really got into politics right about when, when, when Bush came into office when I was about 30, mm -hmm. it, I got into it. But prior to that, and it really, I was sort of oblivious. All I cared about was records and girls. And, you know, like somehow my brain couldn't handle a third thing, I guess. But, uh, you know, I, I think about the people that we were listening to that really were fired up about politics, like punk rock bands mm -hmm. that were really railing against Reagan. And I, I have to sort of say, look, I'm, 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 I'm really impressed retroactively that they were so engaged because I wasn't and I'm embarrassed by that. But, you know. I was the same. And we were kind of asleep at the wheel, you know, my generation. Listen, we were on Simple Machines in 91 and they were way political. You know, yeah. that, was, that was the Discord record scene and Teen Beat. And all their parents were diplomats. And they would, I'd go down to DC and talk to Jenny Toomey, who's now like a big shot for freedom of music speech. And everyone was political. And I felt like, whoa, yeah, you know, I'm, writing about, I'm writing about pink fairies and and then I moved to San Francisco and, and you know, I once gave Jello Biafra a ride home over the bridge from Oakland to San Francisco and he was intense, man. And I thought, you know, calm down, you know, like, but, you know, I also felt sometimes the politics got in the way. Like if you name yourself dead Kennedys or you name yourself Reagan, you know, Reagan youth, you're forever going to be pigeonholed in that time frame. Yeah. Like who cares about Reagan now who's, 18 and should care about those lyrics that obviously they're you know reagan youth had some great songs and great lyrics but you 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 put yourself in a box that way and if the world is not open you know lyrically so i always wondered about it but you know again we didn't have the internet in the 90s as at least as much as now we weren't always up to date like you turn on anything now and you see the top 10 headlines and they're all political and it's all like you should know this and you're dragged in. We weren't dragged in ever. That's why I'm fine with being a Gen Xer. We were never dragged into anything. TV was when we wanted to watch it. It was a box in the living room, turn it on or turn it off. But to make a phone call now, you're getting pushing notices to do anything, to check an email, to, to buy on Amazon. Everything's pushing, 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 right? So now it's a, it's a big deal. We weren't locked into to media back then. So it wasn't your fault or my fault. It was the world we lived in. 
we were oblivious. We were oblivious. And, and I know I'd walk into Amoeba or at the time Rasputin's, which was, was my store when I was a, a teenager and uh, before Amoeba existed. And I'd walk in and I'd see all those punk rock albums and you'd see like Reagan's face. On, and I thought, well, these young kids are really engaged in what was happening politically. And I always felt like I just like pop music. I, I wasn't really paying attention, but I'm, you know, I'm certainly paying attention for the last 25 years. And it's, it's, it's hard to imagine what's going on wouldn't make it into your art because it's it just feels like it's so acute right now. It it it's definitely as a parent you start caring you know and and yeah. it happens and so yeah it's it's all over what we do now you know I mean we're not calling a record Sandinistas or something but you know <laughs> right to be honest I I avoided that record I was in a London Calling you know but then again London Calling was political so. Um, I'm a big fan of, if you want to say something, you say it in the most poetic way possible. And what does that mean? You make your point uh, touch the heart, not pushing at people, but a two-way street, even as a singer. So poetry leaves the door open for the listener to sort of have this sort of dialogue because you're, you're twisting words around that have never been done before, making them raise an eyebrow, and making them go, wow, what is this about? Oh, I think it's about, yeah. you know, yeah. the shooting in France, or I think it's about the president. You're not totally sure. And so it's, it has more general like response. Whereas if you call a song, I hate this person and go, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him, you know, then it's like, okay, thank you. Don't need to hear that again. But poetry, you need to keep listening. And every time yeah. you listen, it changes and it evolves. There's this dialogue between you, your ears, it, your ear has a mouth all of a sudden and their mouth has an ear and it's a two-way street. And that to me is the best, the best political songs. Who did it well? The Beatles, you know, it's like revolution. Every time I hear it, I'm, I hear like a little counter thing, you know, and, um, and that's why I love when, when poets get really kind of into the world and po political and they stop singing about the, gr the green grass and the and daisy lions and when musicians get into it that aren't used to it it's a new thing and they 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 become to ca they they care about it you know yeah that's when it's deep you know yeah, you're right because if, if it's too literal like you know like if it's about the, the kent state shooting if it's about the specific rebellion of this time then when you when you go to that song it's so narrow that it's sort of like, no. right? And and so like like if revolution was about the uprising of 1871 or something, I, I think I might think that's too narrow, but revolution can be emblematic of any revolution, personal, political, emotional, anything. So there is something about poetry that allows it to be more universal, I think. Totally, totally. Revolution could be about your own internal revolution. Yeah. He's not dropping names. Sometimes he does, but you know, he was doing enough acid where he probably forgot after a while who he was angry about politically and then just threw in some other stuff. And they're so happy that he did, you know? Yeah. Like, it you just, don't want the writer to be too cognizant when they're writing about a pointed subject. That's right. That's right. Like, like the, the song Ohio, the, the Neil Young song, like, I just, I mean, it's, I get it, what it is. I understand it's, it's fantastic and all, but I don't, I can't say I return to it because I don't want to just go to that, that moment in time. Um, yeah, you want to go to that moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, too narrow. Um, 
So you have a creative household. Are, are your kids creative as well? Do you find that there's creativity happening in, in that there, area? There could always be more. Mm. My daughter plays the flute. My son plays youth. But there could always be more. Yeah. Especially for this, this generation that's just tied to their, their screens. And, you know, I wrote a song that I'm really proud of, uh, Out From Under the Glass, on the last record. I did a video for it. And it's about, you know, we're just, un we're under the screen. So our bodies are looking, but what we see is us and we're trapped. It's like caught under, you know, an ocean of information and at the top is glass. And, and the song is so gorgeously played by the band and, and it really, you know, nailed, nailed what I was feeling, which is I'm losing, I'm losing my own kids. I'm losing myself, I'm losing my wife, I'm losing my friends to this ocean of information. And, and, you know, what starts out as a way to connect, 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 have friends, 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 Facebook, whatever, ends up creating enemies, ends up creating rifts, ends up creating divisions, ends up creating yeah. two Americans. You, 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 your own family is a stranger, you know. And that, that song was like my poetic way, I hope, of, which only means to me a new way of saying it, you know, um, that you've never heard before. It's my own way of just getting it off my chest. I, I've lost control. I've lost control of myself. We've all lost control. It's too enticing. These alg algorithms keep, you know, we all thought it was going to be a physical scare, like robots coming down the street and attacking you. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a soul, deep soul, emotional disconnect, which is worse, where you're just a zombie and your kids are a zombie and you're just, what happened? You know? And that's to me is more frightening than nuclear war. Well, over this just keeps going. Yeah, know? I know. Well, I mean, imagine in the in the early '90s, if you and I had had the internet in 1991 or 1987, oh. um, you know, we would be having a different conversation. I'm not sure how productive we would have been. You wouldn't have the show, probably. You would. You, it would have sucked the inspiration out of you. I, I think that's probably true. Yeah. Um, oh, for sure, true. When you go back and you look at like this album, which has been been reissued, and when you go back and you look at the work, and now you can be the sort of objective editor guy. Um, do you look back at the work that you created and go, "Wow, I was it was pretty good. Like I was I was young, but I was really onto something." Or or are you critical? Or how how do you listen to the old stuff? It, well, it sounded like very young dudes that you know, had no understanding of parameters. They didn't, you know, you couldn't do that, really? Like now you can't do certain things. We didn't know what we couldn't do. There's a sort of a bittersweet feeling about reissuing old stuff because after Simple Machine sold out of those first thousand copies or 5,000 copies, it went out of print. Yeah. It wasn't anywhere. And what I like about like being a 30 plus year old band is some of your stuff doesn't exist. And that really makes people crazy when it's unattainable. Everything's attainable. If I mention Abraham Lincoln to my kids, they're geniuses. It's all attainable. But if I say coming into beauty, they're like, that doesn't exist. <laughs> and what, like, what a rare thing to make people crazy that there's this album that they heard once at a friend's house in 95, and they still haven't gotten a copy. Right. I think that's awesome. That's like, um, that record doesn't exist. Like, you, it's, it's a myth. It's like when, when, uh, when the parents thing was started in the 80s, like parental uh, t 
Tipper Gore and these lyrics. Oh yeah, the parental advisory thing, sure. It made it unattainable. It yeah. made it legal. It was illegal music. And it always made it sell more because everyone had to have a copy of NWA, you know, like, so now, now we're putting it out finally and it's kind of bittersweet. Like now we're attainable. And it's kind of sad, but it sounds really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like okay here it is now you can attain it but at least we remastered it we did better artwork and and you know it's to me it sounds as fresh as a lot of bands out there you know um it sounds current it doesn't sound that dated it doesn't sound like a michael bolton record or a, a grunge record that really just can't get out of 91 like yeah it, it or or uh, an emo record that can't get out of two thousand. Like it sound those records just like, I don't know. It sounds kind of like a modern record to me. Like just kids getting in a garage and playing. Do you think of the mommy heads as a kind of organism now that is just growing? Um, because it seems to me like you're just so filled with ideas, and it's so exciting. So I I've always loved the band and the fact I, that there's so much music coming. Is so exciting to me. So do you kind of feel like adding to the discography, um, there's going to be a lot of additions, there's going to be a lot of Mommy Heads records in the future? Uh, we're, I'm working on Swiss Army Knife. I found a bunch of cassettes. Talk about unattainable. God. A hundred of those. Yeah. And the next one was David Grohl's solo thing, you know, when Nirvana broke up, he did his solo stuff and gave it to Civil Machines. So like I was in nice company, uh, pre-Foo Fighters, right? So and that was a hundred copies. So I'm, I'm finding the cassettes, I'm putting them to digital and I, yeah, I think this is just like, keep putting stuff out, make it a rabbit hole. You know, if you like the first song, you'll probably like the second, you'll probably like the 30th song. And, and I do feel like there are people like me that like, that like um, XTC, Tears for Fears, The Kinks. Uh, and, and like, I, I love new bands. Like Once in Future Band I found last week from Oakland. And they give me reason for the next three months to be alive musically. Like, I just love it. And I'm like, I want to keep living. That's what music does to me. Like, if I, first time I heard Phoenix, I, I, I want to keep making music, you know? So I think there are people that have that sort of mixture of desires musically and likes that would understand us. I don't think it's gazillions of people. I think it's a finite amount. And I think they're smart people. I think they're in the right place in terms of they don't want to hurt anyone. They're just good people yeah. that I'm friends with, that I would like to have tea with. And those are the people we, we do this for. And they could be five, they could be 5,000. Um, and that's it. It's like, just keep putting out some old cassettes here and there if they're worthy and keep making new records and, and do what the residents did. Just keep pumping stuff out. People do care, you know. There's a place for you in the world, whatever you have to say. So that's my takeaway for, for this band, at least. And yeah, doing, doing 50 doesn't matter. Right, right. And I also think that for people who are artists of any kind, of any age, of any genre, of any discipline, I love that you said that because I feel that if you're creative and you're creating something, there is a place for you. And, and look, it may not be the Smithsonian. It may not be the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but who cares? <laughs> who cares? Who wants to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I mean... <laughs> The bands we really listened to, like my friend, dude friends were Rush and Yes, and they got put in when after no one else was left. Like, 
who's left? And then you're like, well, why didn't they go in the first, you know, in 91? Why didn't KISS go in in 91? Because they had a set idea. The people on the board, Robbie Robertson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The band gets in first. Elton John gets in. The Stones get in. And then 20 years later, we'll put in Rush. You know, you can love or hate Rush, but their shows were packed to the very end. Yeah. People love them. So when you think about who's really going in, who wants to be in that? It's it's like I wouldn't want to be in a group that would have me. It's it's the Groucho Marx thing. You know? Well, and people like Jonathan Richmond or Robin Hitchcock will probably never be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And those guys are they're like they're like amazing. How about so, X are they in? No. No. I mean, come on. Yeah. I got in, but XTC is what is doing it before the cure. They started in the 70s. Or maybe no, the cure started in the 70s too, but yeah. Wait, are XTC in or they're not in? No, there's no, no way. There's no way. I would know. <laughs> you would know. Yeah, you, you would know. You know, I talked to the drummer of um, Styx, uh, this guy Todd Sukerman, and I didn't know what to expect. We talked about XTC for a half an hour. The guy is like obsessed with XTC. <laughs> I, I didn't know that was going to happen. I was really happy to hear that. You know what it is about them? To be a great musician, Sometimes you got to play the stinky music, right? You got to do fake weather report or Jocko, or you know, you got to play like Jeff Picaro. You got to, and it ends up being bad music. Like when you leave Berkeley School of Music, chances are you're not making a cool record. Right. You're overplaying, and it takes years to figure out how to make good music again because you learn too much and you're all full of licks. Thumbnail XTC combine that musicianship with solid d good songs they i know those guys can play with anyone if they wanted to and and that's the trick it's like a lot of those bands in the 80s may not have been great musicians they they relied on their songs or the great musicians were over here but they just put it together so they weren't just smart about writing music they were smart about how to play like if you listen to any con molding bass line it's never been done before. It never will be done before. Melt the Guns baseline, never gonna happen again. No one would know how to do it. They're, they're eventually we'll have Dead Sea Scrolls rolled out about Colin Molding's bass playing, like how to do it properly. It'll be translated in 30 languages. And Andy Partridge's guitar chords don't exist. He's got seconds on two fingers. It's like, there's so much dissonance in his chord that it makes you weep. That's what I'm talking. That's the stuff they didn't teach me in music school. You know, you know, parallel fifths were wrong. There was so much wrong. Yeah. Mozart wouldn't have done that. Bach wouldn't have done that. Andy Partridge does that in one chord. So he invents his own musicality to fit his final destination of music. I mean, that's just, you know. Well, I still remember again how profoundly important Skylarking was. It was like spring of 87 or something. And I still remember how listening to Grass for the first time and just going like, wow, the, the world's never going to be the same. Like, it was a concept record after The Wall. What was, what was, in, concept records were done. The Wall killed them all. And then, and then that Skylarking came out, which was about the seasons. Yeah. And then what have we had since concept wise? It's like, it's pretty light. <laughs> it's, pre it's pretty light. Um, by the way, did you ever get those Martin Newell records? He did one with, with, with Andy Partridge. I love them. Yeah, I do too. And I love the recent Robin Hitchcock collaboration. I think it's wonderful. 
I, I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Dude, I've wanted to talk to you for a really long time and, and I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to, to do this. I appreciate you taking the time to, to go deep with me. Of course, anytime. You're, you're, yeah. you're, uh, you're one of our people. <laughs> Thanks, man. And uh, I hope you'll come back on the show. Anytime you want. Awesome, awesome. Well, cool, I'm glad we've, we've met and, um, and I'm really grateful, dude. I'm grateful as well. Please, please uh, keep doing what you're doing. It, it matters to us. There you go. Adam Elk of the Mommy Heads, a very sweet guy. Very fun to talk to him. Felt like an old friend. Felt like a pal. And uh, I really appreciated what he said there at the end, too. Very, very kind. Mommyheads.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with the band. And there is a lot going on, so do pay that site a visit. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. You want to follow me on Twitter? Please. Be my guest at Ember's Editor or follow me on Instagram. I mean, look, I'm no labradoodle, but I'm a pretty good follow at Ember's Podcast or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget to visit Bombshell Radio at BombshellRadio.com. And don't forget that Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. I'm not saying you forgot. I'm just reminding you. Go to the platform that you use. Subscribe. Tell a friend, rate, and review. Let's close the show with a longer listen to the Mommy Heads, Twists and Turns. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Twists and
Catch your eye. 